See, the Pharisees were experts at sacrifice. They were experts at religion. They were experts. Amen. <laughs> Morris, there are so many things going through my mind right now that I'll, I'll, I'll catch you later. <laughs> but uh, Randy has been suffering with uh, bronchitis these past uh, several days, and uh, he's not been able to be with us. So um, I'm a substitute this morning. And uh, I won't tell the substitute joke, but there is one. Our text this morning is actually in Matthew 5, 7. That's the beatitude that says, Blessed are the, uh, the, um, the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But before we get to the beatitude, I think we need to understand what the Bible means, what God means when he talks about mercy. You see, one of the things we've been discovering about the beatitudes is that they turn the world upside down. That the things that the world would expect out of being poor, out of being meek, out of mourning, out of hungering and thirsting, the things the world would expect are actually turned upside down, and this is actually a blessing. We've also been finding out that the Beatitudes don't make any sense without Jesus Christ. That if you try to extract them from Christ and just use them like they came to you out of a fortune cookie, they're just going to baffle you. But once you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the Beatitudes make all the sense in the world. Because Christ is the very definition of what it means to be blessed. Christ is the very definition of what it means to uh, be poor in spirit, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, to mourn. And so we've discovered that in the Beatitudes, Christ giving to us this explanation, this, this view, picture of what it means to be in the kingdom of God, um, in the Beatitudes, then Christ is the one who shows us what that means. So now we come to the Beatitude. It says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And at first this sounds like a transaction. It sounds like a, a, an offer to buy, that uh, if uh, all you can do is uh, uh, be a little bit kinder and gentler in the world, then uh, somehow God will be kinder and gentler to you. It's sort of a quid pro quo, what goes around comes around. Um, students of world religion would say it almost sounds like karma. You know, if you're merciful, then mercy will flow in your direction. Well, I doubt that that's what Jesus meant. And the reason for that is that there was a time when he talked about mercy, not in so many words, but he talked about mercy when he was explaining to Peter what forgiveness ought to be. See, Peter had come to Jesus and he said, what about this, this forgiveness, Jesus? Don't you think that if I forgive my neighbor or somebody who offends me, if I forgive him seven times, don't you think that's about enough? Don't you think that seven times just about exhausts the limits of what forgiveness ought to be? And Jesus said, actually, Peter, not seven times. Seventy times seven, Peter. That's how often you ought to forgive. And then to illustrate the point, uh, Jesus uh, gives this story, this illustration. We read it a little bit earlier in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18. You may want to have your Bible in front of you just to remind you of the narrative, but uh, it talks about a king 
who decided to settle accounts. He had uh, folks all throughout his government with uh, financial responsibilities and they were um, uh, uh, spending the money and having to take care of the money and so the king said let's settle accounts. Let's bring in uh, the, the uh, responsible bureaucrats and let's find out what they've done with the king's money. Uh, it's sort of a novel idea, accountability in government, but uh, um, you know, Jesus said things that baffle us today. And so they, they brought in the servants, and when they did that, they found one servant who was really industrious. He had done a better job of deficit spending than anybody else. And it turned out that he had managed to misspend, embezzle, and steal something on the order of 10,000 talents. Now, it's hard to know what 10,000 talents would be worth today. Some have said, well, about $6 billion. I would think about $10 billion. In point of fact, uh, scholars tell us that the aggregate wealth of that region of Palestine and Galilee was actually less than 10,000 talents. So uh, for us to understand it today, we'd have to think something in terms of here was a man who owed all what? 16, 17 trillion dollars. Um, I'm given to understand that's not a very large number. But the point is, he had managed somehow to filter, let's just say 10 trillion dollars out of the king's hands. He'd spent it. King said, well, how about it? Let's have it back. The guy said, you don't understand, King. Uh, I was trying to uh, get things moving in the economy and so forth. And uh, so uh, what has happened, King, is I, I don't have it. The king says, that's fine. You know the rules, don't you? What we're going to do is we're going to sell you into slavery. Now, the idea there was if you sell a guy into slavery, then you get the money from the sale, and that offsets the debt. You were allowed to do that if you weren't Jewish. If you were a pagan king, you could do that. Now, the, the kicker is, though, uh, he owed 10,000 talents. People in the know tell us that the highest price that you could get for a human slave at that time was one talent. But the king said... You're going to pay something here, selling you, selling your wife, selling your kids, selling your household, selling everything you've got, and we're going to pay the debt. The man, realizing that there was a problem here, uh, just falls down in front of the king. He says, you've got to be patient with me. You've got to wait. Give me time, and I'll pay it all back. To which the folks standing to one side said, right. That's a real likelihood that you're going to pay back 10,000 talents. Now what we should notice here is the incredible size of the debt owed to the king. In fact, you couldn't run up a debt this size with anybody else. I mean, what impressed me is that the king was so rich, 10,000 talents were taken and the king had so much, he... he you know, he hadn't noticed it yet. Our Father in heaven is infinitely rich. Our Father in heaven is infinitely glorious. And though by our sin and by our rebellion we try to steal the glory from God and, and take it for ourselves, though by our sin and disobedience we take away from God the, the obedience that we owe him, 
and we take it unto ourselves and we try to control our own lives. Yet he is infinitely God and therefore infinitely glorious. We do not decrease the glory or the sovereignty of God one bit by our sin and rebellion. Yet when we do so, we incur an infinitely sized debt. What we owe God is measured by who God is. And so to sin against an infinite God results in an infinite debt to God. It results in a debt that we cannot pay. Let us suppose we stand before God. He says, you know, you owed me your life. You didn't give me your life. We said, oh, God, be patient with me. I'll be good from now on. Every day from now on, I, I'll, I'll behave. You'll never see me sinning ever again. I've learned my lesson. That's fine, but you owed me your whole life. You already owe me the rest of your life. You're not giving me anything. That's not going to pay off a debt. You owed me your life up to this moment. And even if you could be sinless from this moment on, that's just what you owed God anyway. You are still a debtor to God because of sin. So there's an incredible debt that is owed. And there's an incredible inability of the servant to pay. And that's where we are before God. Scripture says that he pleaded with the king to have patience with me. I'll pay everything back. Give me time. The scripture says that out of pity, the king forgave him. It doesn't say the king was impressed with his dramatic presentation. It doesn't say the king was impressed by this guy's financial statements. It doesn't say the king was impressed by this guy's uh, skill at organizing a grand theft operation. It doesn't say he was impressed with the man at all. It says the king was moved with pity for him. That word pity, by the way, is the exact same word that is used when the scripture says that when Jesus saw the people, he was moved with compassion. He had pity on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The king looked upon this man, and his heart went out to him. And out of pity, he forgave the debt, released the man, said, that's, that's all right. You can go on with your life. Now, this is an amazing thing. I mean, this, this is the kind of thing that, that you only dream about if you're um, getting ready to take a final exam and you haven't studied and you start to pray, you know, that something will happen, you know, Jesus will come again or something to, to get you out of it. I mean, this is an impossible deliverance. It just doesn't happen. Jesus says, yes, it does when you have a king, when you have a master who's filled with compassion for you. Well, then what happened? The servant said, well, this is great. I feel like a million denarii. You know, I'm, I'm off the hook. And so he goes out, and as he's wandering along, he finds his friend. There's his friend. friend owes him a hundred dollars, hundred bucks. He says, friend, you need to give me a hundred bucks. You owe it to me. Friend says, you know, I don't have it. He says, well, you know what happens to people who don't pay debts? We got a thing called debtor's prison. How'd you like that? And his friend said, no, have patience with me, and I'll pay it all back. Now, I am not a financial wizard, but it seems to me it's easier to pay back a hundred bucks than it is ten trillion dollars. And the man who had been forgiven the debt by the king says to his friend, no, 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 you got to pay me now. Don't have it. Pay me now. Don't have it. To jail you go. And he put his friend in prison. 
Now the idea was you, you put somebody who owes money in prison and uh, one of two things will happen. Either their, fr- your, their family and friends will come and buy them out. You know, they'll pay off the debt to get them out of prison or that maybe they have some money stashed in a coffee can in the backyard and they'll tell you where it is. That's the idea behind debtor's prison. So, so throw you in prison for a hundred bucks. The other servants went to the king. They told him about it and the king said, you know, I, th- I think it's time for a little talk here. And he calls in the first servant, and when he gets there, the king says, look. And it's not exactly in the text. Uh, you, you sort of have to know the Greek language to get the nuance of this, but, but hidden in there is, is the sense of the king saying to this servant, are you nuts? Are you insane? This doesn't make any sense. I forgave you $10 trillion, and you can't forgive your friend a hundred bucks? I forgave a debt you could never pay. You can't even give him a little more time to pay a debt? This is absolutely absurd. What kind of person could you possibly be? Scripture says the king called him, you wicked servant. Wicked. That's what it is. To take the forgiveness of the master and then not share it with others, that's wicked. Tell you what should have happened. He should have gone to his friend and said, friend, you owe me a hundred bucks. Friend says, I don't have it. Be patient with me. I can, I can pay you later. Friend, let me tell you something about our master. He just forgave me ten trillion dollars. And it's a sorry sort of a man I'd be if I couldn't forgive you a hundred bucks. Look, your debt is forgiven. Thank you, friend. No, don't thank me. Thank the master. Thank the master because when he forgave me, my eyes were opened up. When the master forgave me, my life was changed. When the master forgave me, it suddenly became impossible for me to ever count anyone as owing me anything at all. You thank the master. You see, he had an opportunity to glorify the master by forgiving his friend. Didn't do that. Wanted a lousy hundred bucks instead. And so what happens, he's, you know, he's, now he's in front of the king. The king says, you wicked servant. You couldn't figure that out. You couldn't tell that the reason I forgave you was because you pleaded with me and out of compassion and pity, I forgave you. And none of that grabbed hold in your life. Not a bit of it. That's what you did to your friend. Then he says, and this is verse 33, says, you ought to have had mercy on your friend. So I forgave you because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy as I have had mercy? See what the master did. He said, shouldn't your life somehow be connected to who I am? Shouldn't how you behave and how you treat your fellow servants, shouldn't that be radically changed by the way that I have dealt with you in your life? You've had a monster amount of mercy. And you couldn't see your way clear to share just a little little bit of that mercy with somebody else. And so the master said, well, if you can't get the point, we'll just throw you in jail until you do. So you pay the whole debt. And the man is there to this day. 
And then this, this is the, the, the troubling thing. I mean, th th it's a great story, you know, hooray for the master, boo on the servant. But here's the problem. At the end of it, Jesus says, that's how my heavenly Father will deal with you. He says, that's what's going to happen in your life if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. So that, that's what happens. Now here's why. The servant who refused to forgive his fellow servant was not only wicked, not only denying the glory of the master, not only bypassing the goodness and the, and the mercy of the master, he was also foolish. He was just plain foolish. I mean, what was he thinking? Well, you know, the master forgave me uh, ten trillion dollars, and no, 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 you've got to pay me that hundred bucks, throw you in jail. King will never hear. He'll never find out about it. I'm in the clear. I mean, it's, it's sort of silly to think the king wouldn't find out about it. It's kind of the way we think that we can be bitter and angry and resentful, that we can harbor a grudge, that we can can tell others, no, I can't forgive you. It's sort of like the way that we want to miss others for whom Christ died, and then we think, God will never hear about it. He'll never know how I've treated a brother. I mean, that's foolish. See, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. What that means is the fool says in his heart, God will never find out. The master did. The servant was not only wicked, he was foolish, and in point of fact, he was unrepentant. You see, it turns out that when he uh, was kneeling down and going through the great motions of, oh, you know, Master, forgive me, give me time, I'll pay it off. He was not a broken man, he was a scared man, and that's all he was. He wasn't a man who had been brought face to face with what he had done. He was a man who had been brought face to face with punishment for what he had done. And that's all he really cared about. Punishment gone back to the old way of life. There was no repentance. And that is why when the master said, no, you are going to pay the debt, you notice what he said, I forgave you because you pleaded with me. It turns out that your plea was hollow, empty. There was nothing to it. And therefore, by closing yourself off from mercy to your friend, you have closed yourself off from mercy for me. He was unrepentant. It, 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 it reminds me of uh, a time when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, which he did a lot. And the Pharisees were complaining. They said, Jesus, why, why are you always with sinners and tax collectors? It was when he had called Matthew and went to Matthew's house for dinner. Pharisees said, now, why is it you're always with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus said something like, well, you know, the, the physician comes to heal the sick. And then he said this, Pharisees, why don't you go and learn what this scripture means? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. See, the Pharisees were experts at sacrifice. They were experts at religion. They were experts at the pageantry and the drama, the, the, the theatrics of worship. The, the, uh, the Pharisees were experts at looking like they cared about the master. 
Jesus said, why don't you do this? Why don't you go learn what I said through Hosea the prophet in Hosea 6.6. I don't want your sacrifice. I desire mercy. I desire lives that when they go away from the altar are transformed, radically changed. Lives that when they come to temple and they experience the mechanisms whereby they might experience my grace and know that my grace is real in their lives, that once they have sacrificed, when they go out, their lives are now filled with the mercy that they have experienced at the altar. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So now I think we have a definition of mercy that we can use in the Beatitude. It turns out that the mercy Jesus is talking about is God's mercy. It's God's mercy. It's a mercy that is given where it's undeserved. It's a mercy that is given that could never be earned. It's a mercy that is extended to us simply because God has compassion and mercy for us. So it's God's mercy. And when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, he's talking about blessed are those who are filled with the mercy of God, who've experienced what it is to have that debt forgiven, whose sins have been washed away, whose debt has been paid by the broken body of Christ, and whose debt has been canceled out, written, paid in full, in the blood of the Lamb. Blessed are the merciful who have experienced that degree and that kind and that quality of the mercy of God. Because when they go out into life, God's mercy is going to keep flooding into their lives. They're going to receive mercy from God and mercy from God. You know, why is it we don't show mercy? We're afraid it'll run out. We're afraid if we're merciful, somebody's going to take advantage of us. Somebody's going to run all over us. And we're going to be hung out to dry. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. You know, you're really in good shape when you've experienced the mercy of God. Your life is beautiful. I've got good news for you. The mercy of God is an unending supply. An inexhaustible stream of mercy comes into your life. And that's why you're blessed. When your life is filled with that kind of mercy, expressing the mercy of God for you in Christ Jesus. Because the mercy keeps coming. Just keeps coming and coming. The ancient Jews went into the temple. And once a year, they sent in their representative, the high priest, into the Holy of Holies. And the high priest came to sprinkle the blood of sacrifice where? on the mercy seat. We come to the table of Christ. This morning I think of it as the table of God's mercy. And it would be a pretty sorry Christian who would come to the table of Christ and then walk away unchanged. It's a pretty sorry believer would take the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for cleansing. Thank you for wholeness. And then go out and insult the master by the way we deal with others. You see, the kingdom of God is populated with people who have been forgiven, 
by God's mercy and who have been changed by God's mercy. Now, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Uh, wow, that's disheartening, because I find it awfully hard to be merciful. Uh, I, I noticed this about myself, uh, so you don't need to tell me about it. But what I notice is that my first reaction when I see something wrong, you know, really wrong, I just want to go and get the person doing the wrong and tell them what's what. Fortunately, God doesn't give me the ability to do that most of the time, unless it's small children. But, uh, I mean, I was in the car the other day. I was, uh, I was at the light there at Middleton Road here on 301. I was in the middle of my commute home. And, uh, <laughs> and it was a tough one. I, I had to stop at the light that day. So I'm stopping the light, and there's this big line of traffic, and, and uh, I hear this, and, and this motorcycle goes between the cars and right by us, which is perfectly legal. Is it? You know, and I, I felt like, honk the horn, you know. Yeah, he's going to hear your horn. I've got a little CRV. You know what my horn sounds like? Beep. <laughs> I mean, this guy's really going to be impressed. But, but the, what, what bothers me about it is that my inclination is I must, you know, force justice, righteousness on this guy who just took advantage of the fact that he's got a motorcycle on a nice day. That's my inclination. And so if the only way I get mercy is if I'm first merciful, I'm sunk. I mean, really sunk. And that's why the gospel is good news, because it says that God loved us so much that in, while we were yet self-righteous excuses. Christ died for us. It says that God loved us so much that even though he knew from the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, he knew that I would have this unholy desire to honk my little horn at a guy who, that he purposed to send Christ to die. And that's why this the attitude doesn't make any sense without Christ. Why don't you be real, real merciful? Maybe God will give you just as much mercy back. But in Jesus Christ, it means why not come to the mercy seat? Come to the cross. Come to Christ who is the expression of the love, compassion, grace, mercy of God. Come to Christ. He fills us with the mercy of the Father. Our lives changed. And now the mercy of the Father flowing into our lives. We cannot help but be merciful towards others. And then we know this constant flow of the mercy of God in our lives. We come in a moment to the table where the mercy of God is made available to us. And it would be a pretty sorry believer who could then leave unchanged and without mercy. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? And Father, because of your grace, we have received mercy. Because of your Holy Spirit, we know how great is the price Jesus paid for our debt. Because of your mercy, we are forgiven our sins. 
This morning, may we be renewed in our faith and reminded of the cross in such a way that every part of our lives would reflect our thanksgiving and praise for the wonder of salvation. Make us merciful, Father, so that we would then live as children of mercy. For your glory, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. And just before we come to the table, we sing a hymn as the Holy Spirit works in your life, moves your heart to a decision. Respond quickly, obediently to the call of God's grace.